0: Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 56, Revelation, Challenging the Empire. And in this episode, what I would like to do is to think a little bit further about what it would have been like for Christians living in the first century in Rome to challenge the empire that surrounded them as they were attempting to live out their beliefs in the kingdom of God. And then what I would like to do is to fast forward to our present day and to pose some questions about what it would also look like to challenge the empire in the nations in which we live and how vastly different the kingdom of God really is from the kingdoms of this world. So let's jump right into it. What I am about to share in this episode may be difficult for some of my listeners, Um, but I'm compelled for the sake of the kingdom of God to make certain that we hear how the call for faithfulness in the midst of an empire may actually feel to a committed Christian. Um, One of life's most natural tendencies is to look at other people in other times and fail to see their struggles as really all that similar to our own. A true mark of maturity, though, not to mention humility, is when we are able to critique and evaluate our own time, situation, and selves the same way we evaluate someone else's. And so what I want us to do in this episode is to apply that same maturity and humility to how we understand the very real struggle it would have been for Christians in the first century not to integrate their calling as kingdom of God's citizens with rome's civil religious culture and my reason for focusing our attention here is because if we are not careful we can just as easily compromise our witness to the kingdom of god by too quickly integrating our lives with america's civil religious culture and so what i'd like to do in this episode is to take some advice i received this week from one of my listeners and begin and end my talk with a summarized one-sentence main point. What I'm going to call this week's unbound truth. And so here's this week's truth. The kingdom of God is altogether different from a religious version of the kingdom of the world. And how I want to apply this truth in today's episode is by talking about the idea of America as a Christian nation... And the relationship many Christians I know have with America as a nation. And I have two primary reasons for doing so. Number one, I want to caution true Christians from too closely aligning their beliefs with America's beliefs. And number two, I want to prepare true Christians for the fact that the strongest opposition they will receive when trying to live out the kingdom of God May very well come from the religious community. And if we can get through these two issues, this episode will be a success. And so to begin, let me just define for you once again the difference between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the world is a power over kingdom, it wields its power with the sword forcing its will on others through threat of punishment for defecting from the standard. So it imposes laws, policies, structures, and order imposed from on high. Every kingdom of the world operates in this way. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, is a power under kingdom. It wields its power with the cross, self-sacrificial and compassionate service and love, choosing to give up one's life if necessary even for your enemies and as we looked at in episode 53 revelation he who has an ear in all power over kingdoms power or strength or might is the enemy of weakness as represented in the, go- in the worship of the golden calf your strength is demonstrated in your ability to impose your will whatever that is on those under you in the kingdom of god's power under kingdom power is the servant to weakness as embodied in rightly imaging the lord your strength is demonstrated in your willingness to place yourself under those around you and to serve their needs There is no relationship between these two kingdoms. They're like oil and water. They are diametrically the opposite of one another. And yet, with just enough religious-sounding language, people throughout all time have worked hard to put these two kingdoms together. Now, you might even say that these two kingdom mindsets almost put themselves together And this is just the way it seems to work when people congregate and gather into localized groups. But so just think for a second about how common it is for governments to frame their nation's political life with religious language. Both governments and religions have sacred songs, sacred symbols, statues, monuments, ritual ceremonies... Sacred halls, sacred texts, robed interpreters of those sacred texts, uniformed authority figures, violent foreign crusades, and everyone working in the name of something or someone that they can't point to. Now, in ancient Rome, it was difficult to figure out which sacred elements belonged to Rome's religion and which ones belonged to their political life. And in most cases, the two were just blended into one. And so Rome perfectly embodied what we might call a religious version of the kingdom of the world. But as this week's Unbound Truth stated, as I just said a moment ago, the kingdom of God is altogether different from a religious version of the kingdom of the world. And so I just want to come right out and say it. America as a nation is not, and never was, Christian. It is not furthering God's kingdom by the way that it conducts its national life. And so for the true Christian, we must be aware of the temptations we all face to stand on our American rights when Jesus has explicitly told us that in his kingdom, we are to give up all of our right and so it's at this point where i just want to talk about this for just a moment america as a nation was founded and oftentimes people will soften the christian nation concept and will soften it to the christian it was founded on christian principles but i just want to explain very simply to be christian the the word christian as it first appeared in the bible was in the book of acts and it was when people noticed the way that certain Christians were living in Asia Minor, they labeled them Christian. They labeled them as little christs. They labeled them as those who so closely resembled the type of life that Jesus lived that they, in fact, wanted to give them that label themselves. So, America is founded on religious freedom. It's founded on the freedom and the principle, if you will, of being free to worship in any way that you choose. It was not founded, in other words, to be a nation that exists for the purpose of resembling Jesus Christ in the way that it conducts its national life. It would have to exist for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a self-sacrificial, compassionate, dying for one's enemies kind of way to be actually labeled Christian. And no one who knows anything about America's history could ever argue that America as a nation embodies those principles because they don't. So we have labeled some religious-sounding language onto a kingdom, a kingdom of this world, mind you. We have given it some religious language and a religious cloak that makes it sound as if God's will is going to be done through America, but God's will is carried out through the person of Jesus Christ, And according to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, the holy nation, the Christian nation, the kingdom that is bringing about God's will and work in the world are the Christians. They are the church. And insofar as a country, and this of course is open to all sorts of debate and discussion But insofar as a country is founded by individuals who claimed to be Christians, I get it how the idea surfaces that the nation as a whole is somehow inherently Christian. But what I have also noticed is that the simple fact that there have been people who have decided to adopt the label Christian and to form a nation that is going to declare itself to be under God, that does not, by definition, make it a nation under God. And the reason I can say this is because America as a nation is a perfectly described kingdom of this world. It is a power over kingdom. America has enemies, They vanquish their enemies and they offer peace and security to the citizens of their kingdom who remain loyal to the the founding elements of the nation as a whole. If you defect from these loyalties, from this patriotism, from this nationalism within America, you stand to receive threats of punishment. And so just because a person decides we're going to found a nation that is going to resemble the kinds of characteristics or the kinds of attributes that we think are best for the world, that may be very true. But the way any nation chooses to bring about that way for the world is going to align itself either with the kingdom of God— the power under kingdom, the kingdom of the cross, who loves and self-sacrificially dies for one's enemies, or it is going to impose order and laws and structure from on high to demand that those underneath the rule of America abide by the standards of the country lest they be punished for defecting in some way. America as a nation when it adopts religious sounding language makes it appear as if the God of the Bible is in support of America as a nation and it becomes just as complicated for American citizens as it would have for Roman citizens in the first century to decide which elements are of my political life, which elements of my religious life are meant to be solely reserved for the religious realm and which parts are here for me as in the political realm. And today, what has happened is that the lines have been grossly blurred to the point where in churches, it is oftentimes thought that to be a good Christian, to really love Jesus, to be a you know, a member of the furtherance of the gospel, you really need to vote in a particular way. The thrust of what is actually happening by distinguishing between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world is to recognize that even in our democracy, even in our political system, even in the fact that we have typically The right-wing conservatives and the left-wing liberals, even in that system, the discussion, the political discussion of the day is centered entirely around what is the best way to govern this kingdom of the world. But make no mistake, whichever way you choose to vote, whichever policy you think about enforcing, you are still doing it in a kingdom of the world way. Nations today only exist and only can exist as a power over nation. If you self-sacrificially die for your enemies, your nation goes bye-bye. And that's the point. Which is why Jesus had to tell Pilate and to anyone else who cared to hear, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is from another place. And Revelation does a fantastic job of reminding us, as we will get to in chapter 5 particularly, but that is that the kingdom the Lamb has come to establish, he has ransomed people from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. And what that means is not just that the offer of the gospel is universal, but what that means in reverse is that there no longer exists a geopolitical location or a specific race or a specific gender or a specific locale of people for any reason and at any time that are nationalistically or tribalistically superior or better than any other tribe, language, people, and nation. And so for Christians who truly have received Jesus's self-sacrificial, compassionate, dying love for them who once were God's enemies themselves, once we have received that ourselves, we become citizens of his kingdom. Now, granted, we also live in America. We are citizens of this kingdom as well. And so a very, very important distinction to make is to recognize when I am living out my citizenship as an American and when I am living out my citizenship as a kingdom of God citizen. And the wisdom and the discernment that it takes to be able to tell when those two kingdoms are in conflict with one another is an incredibly important thing to grasp. But what has happened in the Roman Empire and what has no doubt happened in our own is the idea that when you vote in a certain way, say lots of religious conservative Christians, it is in fact God's will for the nation, for you to vote in a particular way. And I will just use the one that tends to surface as the most volatile issue, and that is the issue of abortion. America and those who vote for American policies, you need to understand that when you cast your vote for a candidate who wants to outlaw abortion, you are in fact, yes, encouraged by your belief in God to not want senseless suffering and death to be brought about by abortion you love life god is the author of life and you love life and want to protect it but as a kingdom of god citizen it does not you do not allow the kingdom of the world to frame the discussion or to set up the parameters of this discussion it will not argue policies in terms of the kingdom of this world the way that they do For a Christian, a kingdom of God citizen who values life, the kingdom of God citizen who has embraced the kingdom of the cross, who has embraced a power under kingdom, you do not believe nor do I believe that the way God's will on this earth is brought about. The way God desires the kingdom of God to advance in the world is not going to be in a power over kingdom of the sword type of way where if a policy is put in place and people are threatened to be punished when they defect from that policy, then we once again are centered around somehow a Christian idea. No, for kingdom of God citizens... The best you can do and where your energy ought to be put is to interacting with the people themselves, not in the way the political discussion frames it, not in the way that people want to argue this and debate this and to um, um, demonize those who are on the other side. The kingdom of God citizen says, how could I self-sacrificially and compassionately bleed, suffer and get involved for the benefit, not only of an unborn baby, but of a woman who is in a compromised situation as a result of a man who did in fact get her pregnant in the first place, and in many situations is now no longer in the picture. How can a kingdom of God citizen recognize the brokenness that is in our world, the fear that surrounds the life of that mother, the rejection that might surround the life of that mother, the devastation of the broken relationship she is now entirely responsible for carrying, how does a kingdom of God citizen step into a situation and say to a scared, frightened, betrayed mother, how do I love you? How can I care for you? How can I let you know that I am here for you, that I will not leave you, that I will be with you, I will walk with you? Can we save your baby and can we save you? What would it look like to get our hands dirty in the lives of both the unborn child and in this mother who is about to give birth? It is a self-sacrificial, compassionate, dying-for-one's-enemies type of love that drives the behavior of of kingdom-of-God citizens. It is not which way I can choose to vote to bring about the best version of the kingdom of the world. I am, I am sorry, but I am afraid that in today's society, the church has blindly accepted the kingdom of the world terms and we have decided to call many things that are kingdom of God realities, kingdom of God realities that are in fact blindly being labeled as kingdom of the world. I think I actually said that entirely backwards. What I mean is things that are actually kingdom of the world, we've decided to call kingdom of God principles when those are not the case at all. And this blurs its way into the churches as well. And it blurs its way into this idea of a religious setting that when I have the right beliefs and that when I have god's backing to support my beliefs that now i view myself in a position of of greatness and a position of of status and i have the right as god's image bearer to look down upon those who do not hold the right beliefs or whose lives are who not in the right kind of a practice and this is a devastating thing for the church. It's a devastating blurring of two very, very different kingdoms, making one kingdom sound as if it's doing God's will in one area, and then absolutely cutting the legs out from under us and doing it in, the, in another. If we're not aware of the vast differences there are between a power over kingdom of the cross or I'm sorry, a power over kingdom of the sword and a power under kingdom of the cross, then we very well may think we are bringing about God's will in the world. And the same shocking statement Jesus once gave to the Jews who were convinced they were doing God's work by throwing the Christians under the bus, Jesus himself said not to a nation who decided to call itself godly, But to a nation God Himself declared to be His chosen people, to that nation, Jesus actually said, You say that you are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And it's troubling to me just how many Christians in this nation believe that loyalty to our country, loyalty to some view of the past which they believe makes them Christian and makes our country almost um innocent and righteous in all of its actions and that God is in full support of America at all times or that we simply need to return back to that point when America was firmly in the, the hand of God, it is a misguided notion. It's a misguided notion that God is in support of a power over kingdom as anything other than a kingdom of this world. God does, in fact, use kingdoms of this world, as Paul tells us in Romans 13, to wield the sword. But he does it to restrain the unregenerate hearts of mankind who would, without the sword, run so violently rampant over the earth we would be destroyed in four years flat. So he uses the kingdom of the sword. But Paul says, if you aren't doing anything wrong, you don't have anything to fear by this nation, by this government, by these sword bearers. Paul's point is that God will use kingdoms of the sword. He will use kingdoms of the world. But this is not God's way of advancing his kingdom. It's God's way of restraining the anarchy and the chaos and the bloodshed and the absolute destruction that would result without those things. How sad for us to think that God's way of bringing in his kingdom is limited or reduced to something as pitiful as a kingdom of this world. That is not what Jesus came to establish. He came to establish the kingdom of God. And that's why kingdom of God citizens, who themselves embody the same self-sacrificial, compassionate, dying love for one's enemies that Jesus embodied, can in fact differ in how they think the kingdoms of this world should best operate. And so you can have a kingdom of God citizen who believes that the best policy, the best Kingdom of the sword policy is no abortion should be allowed. And another kingdom of God citizen could look and they could say, um, for the sake of the woman, for the sake of how to best care for her, for the sake of um recognizing that if policies existed in a different way, we would be able to more effectively help our society. We aren't here to debate and discuss and get angry and label one another enemies based upon the way we choose to vote as if 30 minutes at a poll once every four years was the way christians were called to be christians it's not the way christians are called to be christians is to individually and self-sacrificially and compassionately get involved in the lives of people who need the hope of jesus in their lives Now again, to repeat this week's unbound truth, the kingdom of God is altogether different from a religious version of the kingdom of the world. And if this religious version of the kingdom of the world manifests itself into one's national life, it's also very, very important to point out that this can leak itself into one's church life, personal life, and family life. There's a great book that I've just finished and I'm working through now for a second time, but it's written by Greg Boyd called The Myth of a Christian Religion. And I'd like to read for you just a couple of paragraphs from his book. As I use the term, religious people feed the hunger of their heart by striving to impress whatever picture of God or gods they embrace with the rightness of their beliefs and behaviors in contrast to the wrongness of others' beliefs and behaviors. While all idols instill a particular version of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil within us, religion often inclines people to give their version of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil divine authority. And while all idols incline people to act aggressively to protect and advance their good and resist what they judge to be evil, religion often gives this good and evil eternal significance. Religion significantly ups the ante on idolatry and judgment, and so it is not surprising that religion has often inspired violence throughout history and continues to do so today. For the same reason, religious idolatry is particularly resistant to the kingdom of God. It's no coincidence that the main opposition Jesus faced in establishing the kingdom came from the guardians of the religious status quo, the Pharisees, religious scribes, and the like. So it should not surprise us that the main opposition to advancing the kingdom in our own day comes from contemporary guardians of the religious status quo. Whenever we get our worth, significance, and security from the rightness of our personal or national religion rather than from God, we will inevitably fall into the heresy of failing to love. And if life can only be received from God for free, then all the other ways religious people try to find God's life are worthless. If God's estimation of people is based completely on what he has done for people on Calvary, not on what people do for him, then religious people can no longer get life from the fact that they are set apart from others because of their right beliefs and behaviors. If the way Jesus attracted sinners is what it looks like when God reigns, then the way religious people repel sinners must be against God's reign. Jesus was known for the scandalous way he loved. The religious people viewed him as an anarchist, eroding the moral fabric of society because of his refusal to recognize the all-important distinction between their holiness and all that they judged to be unholy tragically christians today often see themselves as the primary defenders and promoters of this very distinction rather than viewing themselves as the worst of sinners as jesus and paul commanded many view themselves as the morally superior guardians of society who will protect it from those they judge to be the worst of sinners so instead of being known as outrageous lovers, Christians are largely viewed as self-righteous judgers. And I chose to read that quote for you, which I know was very long, but and it came from a cut several pages um, in chapter four of his book, but is that I want to begin to point out once again what it very well may look like. If you, as a kingdom of God citizen, as a faithful witness to the person of Jesus Christ, as a light bearer to Jesus' goodness in a dark world, I want you to know flat out, if you choose to live this way and follow Jesus into the heart of what he is calling kingdom citizens to, you will receive resistance from the religious community. The religious community likes the idea that their right behavior and right beliefs put them in a special place with God, and it is only natural to then conclude that there are others with wrong beliefs. Or wrong behaviors that because those things they believe put them out of favor with God, those religious people can mistreat those with wrong beliefs and wrong behaviors and feel justified in pushing them away and ignoring their needs. Because after all, we would not want them to contaminate the goodness and the rightness of our own views. And you will watch this time and again if you are to venture outside the walls of your church and spend your time, as Jesus did, with tax collectors and sinners, with those who have the audacity to question long-held beliefs that people hold on to, or whose lives do not mirror or resemble the kind of life that we all believe God wants us to live in, and one of the reasons why I believe religious people get so flustered is because they have connected their belief that God blesses the, the nation who centers itself around him and God blesses the church that is doing everything in the right way. And therefore God blesses them because of the rightness of their beliefs and the rightness of their behaviors. They have taken onto themselves a, a responsibility that they feel is undermined in some way if they were to self-sacrificially and compassionately um, love and serve those who do not fit that mold. And so it is much easier for a religious person and it is much easier for a religious version of the kingdom of the world to identify people and ideas and institutions outside of the things they believe and the people that are part of their group. It is easy to label those things as enemies it's easy to label those people as enemies. It's easy to label that idea as the enemy. It's easy to label that, that group of people and the way they act or the way they live as the enemy. And Jesus and John in Revelation will repeatedly come back and say, Satan is the enemy. The principalities and powers are the enemy, the very thing that drives religious organizations to see themselves as God's blessing to the world, despite the fact that they are operating on a power over mentality, that is the enemy. Repenting of religion is one of the main things Jesus called people to repent of when he first invited them into the kingdom of God because he wants to say to them this is not what God is after God is after transformed hearts He's after transforming us at the heart level so that we can be loving and compassionate the way He is and realizing that many of our religious convictions, many of the things that we hold on to, that we think put us in the right with God, anything outside of Jesus' self-sacrificial love and death for us as sinners, Anything outside of that does not put us in right relationship with God. But the moment you think some of your behaviors do and your beliefs do put you in right relationship with God, then you believe you have the right to hold in judgment over someone else who does not believe and act in the same way you do. And it is one of the darkest most destructive lies anywhere around. And that is the idea that the kingdom of God is the same as a religious version of the kingdom of the world, but it isn't. It's vastly, vastly different. And as we continue on through the book of Revelation, we will, I will show you time and time and time again where the temptation to blend the two is present, what Jesus has to say about it, why it makes a big difference. And we probably will spend the rest of this podcast for however long I do the podcast talking about the same themes over and over again. But today in this episode, I just wanted to lay it out in this week's Unbound Truth. And I'll just wrap it up here with this. The kingdom of God is altogether different from a religious version of the kingdom of the world the kingdom of the world expects and demands that compliance to its laws policies beliefs actions all of that has to happen or else through threat of punishment we will make sure it happens the kingdom of god is a kingdom, is a power under kingdom. It says the position you now have as one of God's people, you go below others and you serve those that you never thought, you know, that you you thought were, you were always going to be above these people. No, there is no threat of punishment for defecting. There is, I'm going to self-sacrificially love and serve these people into the kingdom. You can't get any more opposite than this. And churches need to become places today that are more interested in a power under kingdom of the cross mentality who welcome in people that aren't like us. And that do not stand so staunchly on our beliefs and behaviors that we walk around with an air of superiority or judgmentalism or undue criticism, labeling people and groups that aren't like us as the real enemies that God can't wait to get rid of. Instead of seeing that every enemy to God is someone that he has chosen to lay his life down for and has called us to walk in that same pattern. That wraps things up for this week's episode of Unbinding the Bible. I definitely would love to receive some interaction with some of you listeners, especially after hearing an episode like that. I know that those themes are not always easy to distinguish. Some of you may really be excited about something like this. This may in fact trouble some of you, and I'm aware of that and would love to dialogue with you. Would love to have the chance to help you work your way through these ideas and how that might work itself out in your own life or in your family's life, your church's life, or in the way that you think about our country as a whole. I know some of you don't even live in America who listen in on this podcast and I hope this was not too confusing for you. I do imagine that the vast majority of my listeners do live in the United States and so for that reason I wanted to make the connection for them. But thank you again for listening in. It's so encouraging to be able to still interact with the numbers of you. If you would, leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. You can send me an email if you have questions or comments to um, unbindingthebible at gmail.com or follow me on Instagram, the Unbinding the Bible Podcast. Have a great week.